darkness falls across Richmond. It's the end of the second season. People named Renee and George will terrorize y'all's neighborhood. And whosoever Chuck shall be leaves us saying, oh boy. As we feel like we're in hell with the always ringing doorbell. The foulest guest is Oliver, the funk of 40,000 lovers, and grisly details of a prostate have us wishing we could leave this place. And though you fight to stay awake, your body cannot rest, for no Golden Girls fan can enjoy the evils of empty nests. <laughs> Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing And laugh just doing our thing No matter the misters that come and go I hope you know you'll always be my sisters Ah, the spin-off. When a show is so successful, greed blinds creators and producers, leading them down a path of poor casting, bad writing, or just plain terrible concepts. The Golden Girls, like many shows of the time, was not immune to the spin-off curse. In fact, three shows came from it. Golden Palace, Empty Nest, and Empty Nest's spin-off, Nurses. It's believed show creator and writer of this episode, Susan Harris, was actually experiencing empty nest syndrome at the time. And that, kids, is what leads us to today's lesson, execution. Talking about struggling with an empty nest, which is when the children of a home have grown up and moved out or left for school, leaving the parents home alone, could have been another moment when the girls were ahead of their time and tackled a topic that others didn't. Instead, the conversation gets twisted into a subplot. Instead of juggling the emotions, we're forced to endure George and Renee, a couple that, despite the acting powerhouses behind the characters, are just so unlikable and so out of the blue. Well, the Golden Girls fans have spoken. This is Empty Nests, what is widely considered to be the worst episode of all of Golden Girls, and in my opinion, one of the worst episodes of television ever. At first... All seems normal. Sophia's in the kitchen wearing a purple dress and matching floral apron. Blanche is in a cream and tan matching pajama and robe set, flowing and sexy as always. But she's also huffy. Annoyed at the mountain of dishes in the sink and on the counter, she wishes out loud for repairman Mr. Fixit to come back and fix their dishwasher. Giving her the advice of, well, you know, you could just wash the dishes, is Dorothy, who is wearing a shirt, a shirt with too many patterns, dickies, and high intense collars for me to even attempt to describe. Rose hasn't a complaint. In her light pink collared shirt with green vest, she shares that back in St. Olaf, the whole family would get together for dishwashing duties. That's why she loves doing the chore. And yes, her whole family was always involved. Even her armless uncle Gustav, who suffered the limb loss after an oversized Swiss Army knife accident, who figured out how to dry dishes with his feet. They always would have the best time. Sophia can't stand Rose's chipper demeanor. How is it possible, no matter what weather, inconvenience, or bad food situation, Rose's family always had the best time? It makes her ask if even in death they partied. Which, of course, they did. Having a funeral only meant they would be getting together to have more good times while talking about past good times. This leaves cynical Sophia winded. Rose is getting on her last nerve. Maybe that's why she mixes up doing the dishes in Sicily by hitting them on the rocks. Blanche points out that she probably meant she was doing her laundry on the rocks. But Sophia didn't. 
That method is what left them with a lot of broken dishes. You know, Coco, even with all of that, none of the intro with the girls even feels like the girls. They always are washing dishes. They would never let the house get that way. Sophia was extra curmudgeonly. It's like it's pilot energy. I, I struggle to watch any pilot of almost any show, mostly sitcoms, you know. Oh, and, they're the worst. Yeah, and it's always that super, you know, you can tell they're excited to be kicking it off. You don't really know the characters. And yeah, the girls even kind of brought that same pilot energy. Yeah, they're giving it 400%. <laughs> When it's really, I mean, in all of the material, none of it's worthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, a few of the jokes are good, but none of it's really, none of it is, what the hell is it? <laughs> it's really shocking that it's Susan Harris, who not only created the show, but has written many episodes up until now, that this was her. I'm sure there was a lot of network pressure, if I had to guess. There had to have been. I, I doubt that she presented them with the idea of George and Renee and, you know, a whole spinoff situation. And, and just the, the plotting of their story is not entertaining. Yeah. It's not, there's no... Not I, original. It's really hard to be sympathetic yeah. at any point with anybody. Yeah. Checking to see who had been at the door after Rose answered the doorbell, it's someone... Someone who is very comfortable with the girls as she makes her way inside, asking who will be joining her to go shopping. It's a bit too early for Blanche, so Renee, as we learn this stranger's name to be, offers to take her out to eat. In a white skirt and matching cream sweater and cardigan, Renee has a seat on the couch as she confirms Dorothy's suspicions. She didn't tell him. Ooh. The she in this conundrum is Puerto Rican-born Rita Moreno, who has been acting on stage and screen for nearly 80 years. After childhood voiceover work for Spanish versions of American programs, her singing, dancing, and acting earned her a role in Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly and the Truby Lady, followed by an appearance in The King and I. But it was her 1961 Oscar-winning performance in West Side Story that solidified her career. That was just the start of her award nominations and wins. She would be acknowledged for her work in Rockford Files, 9 to 5, The Muppet Show, Oz, and One Day at a Time. She's won a Grammy for her work on The Electric Company, and her wins across genres and mediums have allowed her to become one of the few EGOTs. That's when you have an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Additionally, she's been awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom, a Peabody, and a Kennedy Center honor. Now, here's a mind-blowing fun fact. I was too young for the electric company, so I only know, hey, you guys, from the Goonies. I only knew Sloth to be the one to yell that catchphrase. Little did I know, it was actually Rita who shouted it at the start of the electric company. Hey, you guys! Hey, you guys! Putting the pieces together as she shares her story by having to hear the words spastic colon, which I don't care what time of day it is, it is too early for that. It's clear Renee is married to a doctor, a doctor that she needs to talk to about something. The something must be important due to Dorothy's dismay when hearing Renee hasn't talked to him, but she'll try tonight. Finally opening up, Renee lays it all out. She's feeling unhappy because her children have all left the house. Empty nest syndrome, which was first talked about in the early 1900s, was more talked about in the 1970s. Rose experienced it. She was depressed, and once realizing the culprit of her emotions, she was going to talk to Charlie about it. But she didn't get to it after dinner that night, and as they had their five-hour lovemaking session, he died. That grief canceled out her empty nest sadness, so at least that's something... This story earning a death stare from an unblinking Dorothy. On the other hand, Blanche never experienced empty nest depression. She couldn't wait for her noisy reminders of aging to get out of her house. As confused as Blanche may be as to why her children are in therapy, something that meant you were a bad parent back in the 80s, Dorothy is not surprised, especially after hearing Blanche gleefully explain that once her kids were in high school, they were Georges from a previous marriage. This gives Renee an idea. Perhaps she should get a therapist. Yes, if that question is ever asked by anyone for any reason, the answer will always be yes. Especially if you're like Renee, who calls radio shows in the middle of the night to offer suggestions regarding the Palestinian-Israel conflict. 
I won't get into too many details because one, I know I don't know or fully understand the Israel-Palestine conflict. Two, this is a comedy show, but I will give a big oh boy to Renee's suggestion, which Rose heard. P.S. What is she doing listening to a radio show at 2 a.m.? Anyway, Renee's idea was to send the Palestinian people, you know, the ones who have already been pushed out of their land and live in the desert, to the 836,300 square mile, 56,367 person populated Greenland. Even with parkas and boots, this is an oh boy and definitely not any kind of feasible solution. I don't know much about the Israel Palestine conflict. Yes. But I think one of the best resources for information on that is World War Z starring Brad Pitt. Always here with the important information. I think it boils down some essential topics to zombies. Interrupting the ludicrous international problem solving, Blanche brings us back to the real problem at hand. Renee is calling talk shows instead of talking to her husband, a husband that, at the hospital he works, is called a saint. It would be far too selfish of her to ask him to stay home with her to stave off her loneliness. Sophia can't understand her complaining. The patron saint of animals, St. Francis of Assisi, must have had the same conversation with his wife about their relationship. Except, you know, he couldn't marry. Coco, he was your guy. That's right. Go Golden Knights. You know everything about St. Francis of Assisi. My high school was named St. Francis High School. He was the guy, the statue guy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys have lots of animals on campus because of that? Oh, I'm trying to think. I know we had a pigeon problem. (laughs) I always appreciated the image of him, you know, kind of like looking up and then having like... uh, and then having animals oh, yeah. landing on him. You know, Dr. Doolittle. Actually, yeah. Ace Ventura style. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's why I like him, probably. Definitely. I saw Ace Ventura, and then I went to that high school, yeah. and then I was like, oh, my God, he's like the Ace Ventura of the Bible. <laughs> All righty, then. Definitely- <laughs> Renee's only response is basically what she already said about asking him to cut back on work. Even Rose is on George's side. She doesn't want him to work less. She doesn't want to have to find a new doctor. George, which, spinoff or not, is a strange name choice as we already have a George in this universe. He needs to remain Rose's doctor. With the exception of Charlie, George is the only man to have seen her naked. Why? We're not quite sure as to why, since he's a general practitioner, but okay... Of course, Blanche can't and won't believe this. She especially doesn't believe that Rose remembers one more fella to have had the pleasure, her vet. Dorothy interjects, your vet? Figuring out that Rose's chicken had chicken pox, which, fun fact, people get chicken pox, the name possibly related to the mild nature of the illness, or that vesicles related to it look like chickpeas, or that the rash looks like chicken pecks. But chickens, they get fowl pox. (laughs) Ah, this world. Anyway, while Rose's chicken was getting checked out, she figured she'd have the doctor examine her earache while she was there, which involved getting naked because, well, Rose has really bad luck with predatory doctors. But more on that later. Moving on from the very upsetting vet story, Renee has decided she will talk to her husband. She'll leave right then, go cook him breakfast, and initiate the conversation. Well, maybe dinner would be better. He'll be more relaxed. But he'll be even more relaxed laying in bed, so maybe that'll be the best time. No, the best would actually be when he's just asleep. As Renee creates more and more reasons to avoid the conversation, she starts to become emotional. Renee can't just allow herself to be vulnerable with her husband. She's scared of being perceived as weak. Ugh, oh boy. Offering words of encouragement, Sophia points out that if she can be brave enough to leave a poo sample for him, Renee can find the courage to do the same. About the talking, not the poo. Cutting to the outside of a new house that had Coco shivering, we're in a living room, a new setting, but one that will become very familiar in the future. 
For now, there's an unfamiliar character pacing in his very 80s living room, discussing the chipped beef and Polish sausage diet of Rose and whomever he's speaking to on the phone. As someone that was once called obese by a doctor, I can tell you that his berating of his only five foot six but 300-pound patient is probably not going to help. Telling him that even moving truck company Beacons couldn't carry all of his weight is definitely super not going to help. Oh, boy. Coco, how would you describe this house we're at now, besides screaming? A place where the American dream dies. <laughs> a place where a place where a shy little boy, his family exploded emotionally and geographically, and we're no more. Would this be in Southern California in the 80s? This would be in Valencia, California, very close to Six Flags, very close to Six Flags Magic Mountain, but in no way as fun. <laughs> this is the house that my family moved to just, I don't know, eight months or nine months before they divorced, my, my parents. Yeah. I hated that house. I can see it. I can see the dark green carpet, and I can see here arguing and knowing Daddy's not home right now. As I can't remember any of. I think I had a bunk bed. That's the only piece of furniture I can remember, and my bicycle, so which it was is a not good furniture. Time. Uh, we had a jacuzzi. So no. <laughs> Just as this mystery man, who, given his medical advice, we can only assume is George, hangs up the phone, there's a knock at the door. On the other side is Chuck, who greets and confirms that this is George. George probably looks familiar as he's being played by veteran actor Paul Dooley, who could have played Mr. Ha Ha as he got his start in entertainment as a children's party clown. The 93-year-old actor and comedian kicked off his Broadway career in The Odd Couple. He then performed stand-up comedy, landing a spot on Johnny Carson. He went on to, fun fact, create the PBS show The Electric Company. Hey, you guys! Where he worked with Morgan Freeman and his TV wife, Rita Moreno. Besides his extensive acting career, he also created hundreds of commercials with a production company and has written a play. Top job cuts that grease and gets the dirt. New top job, cuts the grease and gets the dirt. Some of the more notable of his over 200 roles include Popeye, Strange Brew, 16 Candles, Alf, Evening Shade with Mr. Burt Reynolds, My Boyfriend's Back, Insomnia, Grace Under Fire, The Practice, and La La. Let's not forget we've met him before as one Isaac Q. Newton. My Boyfriend's Back, was that when, when was that from, 94? Uh, around that time, yeah. Is that the one about the guy who, like the teenager who dies and then comes back to go to prom or something? Yes. I've seen that movie a hundred times. I watched it so many times when I when it came out. I loved it so much. It was really, that might have been the, the one of the first like zombie things I ever was oh, into. Speaking it of is World a zombie War movie. Z. Boy, you're really in a zombie mood today. Yeah, it was like a weird comedy a weird, weird like comedy. It was kind of like horny, a horny, very horny zombie movie. It was very horny. Yeah. I know it was around 93, 94 mm -hmm. because I was only about 10. I was at my friend Rachel's house and her mom had approved us watching it, even though it was PG-13. And we turned it on and the opening scene is a dream. Literally, this is all I remember from the movie. There's some sort of dream sequence where he and the girlfriend are not having sex, but they're fooling around on a bed in the middle of the gymnasium and everyone's watching. And but it was like some of the most sexual content I had seen, like dry humping. And I was like, whoa, I am not supposed to be watching this. This is naughty. I remember that scene. I remember that's that movie. all I remember from that movie. Yeah. And that's what the whole movie is like. It's like we should revisit it. I would like to watch it. I think it's pretty uh, sex shamey. Yeah, probably very problematic. Extremely, I'm sure. And I think there's someone super famous in the cast like Jack Black or someone like that. Really? Oh, like a secret famous. Oh, no. Famous. I think it's, it is. It is Philip Seymour Hoffman has a small <gasps> part in yes, the movie. Yes, he plays Chuck Bronski. Yep. And it's like, Tracy Lind and Andrew Lowry. I had a big crush other. on Tracy Lind. Matthew Fox. 
Oh yeah. Oh great. Oh my God! How could you? You ate Chuck. Not all of him. What a movie. Cloris Leachman, Edward Herman, J.O. Sanders, Mary Beth Hurt, Matthew McConaughey plays guy number two. Holy crap. I'm watching True Detective right now. I was literally watching it while I was recording the effects for this episode. Yes, you, and Renee Zellweger. We're watching this movie. I think human consciousness was a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Amassing 226 credits over his 50-year career, Jeffrey Lewis, also known as Chuck or Mr. Fix-It or Boris, was the character actor of all character actors. Some of his more notable appearances were in Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, Barnaby Jones, The Waltons, Hawaii Five-0, Falcon Crest, Maverick, Salem's Lot, Every Which Way But Loose, Double Impact, and basically every TV show ever. Super fun fact, Jeffrey Lewis, he was the father of the one, the only, the beloved, the yellow jacket queen herself, Juliette Lewis. Rodeo clowning. A rodeo clown. You've been smoking dope. Yeah. I mean, no, not right now. Let me tell you something. You spend one second in that pan and that bald have his horn up your ass and sticking out your pan. That's exactly what I thought you'd say. Buckle up, pussycats. We're going to oh boy town. Right when we meet Chuck, we also learn he is a multiple personality or disassociative identity disorder as it's now known. Besides Chuck's mental health being laughed at and mocked throughout this episode, DID is not as it's portrayed in the media. Here, the Cleveland Clinic educates us a bit on DID. Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, is a mental health condition. People with DID have two or more separate identities. These personalities control their behavior at different times. Each identity has its own personal history, traits, likes, and dislikes. DID can lead to gaps in memory and hallucinations, or believing something is real when it isn't. Disassociative identity disorder used to be called multiple personality disorder or split personality disorder. DID is one of several disassociative disorders. These disorders affect a person's ability to connect with reality. DID is very rare. The disorder affects between 0.01 and 1% of the population. It can occur at any age. Women are more likely than men to have DID. It is usually formed as a response to childhood trauma as a way to escape the natural, physical, or sexual trauma being experienced. The best thing to do for someone in your life that struggles with DID is to support them. Medications are available, as are therapies. But Renee was right to support her brother in a loving way. Chuck has a question for the doctor, who, I don't know, maybe now he's a psychologist? Since he has three personalities, Mr. Fixit, Boris, and Chuck, how can he know who he's greeting? It's simple for George. Boris and Mr. Fixit have key access, which they don't allow to Chuck. With their expository conversation, we learn Chuck lives in a home for mental health care and that he's been taken off his anxiety meds. What does he need them for anyway? He doesn't feel anxious. He just makes everyone else feel anxious. Oh, boy. Oh, good. More clarity. George isn't Chuck's doctor. He's Renee's brother. Ugh, this has quirky 80s sitcom written all over it. With his doctor's permission, Chuck has actually been released from the medical facility and is looking to get a place of his own. But sitcom joke, he needs three rooms. Get it? For all of his personalities. Oof. It's not even that all of these jokes are in poor offensive taste. It's just that they're not even funny. Offensive can be funny. George Carlin, Eddie Murphy, just look at those guys. But when you're going for the easy jabs of mental health stereotypes and you can't even make it good, then it's just double offensive. Wanting to visit the family dog, Chuck heads upstairs, leaving George and Renee to discuss how they don't have a dog. For Renee, she sees no reason to judge or take away from her brother. 
If he sees things, or as a book she's recently read explained, he might have the power to see things, well, who is she to say otherwise? That's right, she read a book explaining that those who struggle with mental illness are actually the chosen ones. Old George has a good comeback of his own when it comes to the book. Chosen by who? Shirley MacLaine? You may recall Coco compiled a wonderful Shirley MacLaine is a bit of an out-of-the-box thinker montage for a similar reference a few weeks ago. We're talking a million years ago. Just remember, the Atlantean time period lasted 850,000 oh, years. What to do with the pretty long term memory? <laughs> and what am I really so right? It's, this? It's, it's am I actually going to say? I, and then I got to thinking as I was watching CNN and various news shows. What, what will they think of me then? Between <laughs> what is going on now and um, what But I decided to do it because to have the experience. That's the power, really, of doing things for nothing. Sitting down at the kitchen table for some coffee, Renee feels empowered to talk, breakfast being cooked or not. Just as she gets, we have problems, out, the phone rings. This time, it's Mr. Schechter, who has finally urinated. George is as excited for the 97-year-old now as he'll be when he's 97 and is finally able to pee. Trying to get back to her conversation, Renee asks about their marriage. Not hearing or slowing down for his wife, George hustles through the living room to answer the door that has yet another guest, or shall I say guests, on the other side. Even though they know things are tough at home and that at any moment Renee will be having the talk they all talked her into talking about, Sophia and Rose have stopped by. Needing their dishwasher repaired, they've come on a search for Mr. Fix-It. Unfortunately, Chuck is there, and since he can't just snap his fingers and change into another person, they're out of luck with Chuck. Sophia is familiar with Chuck's condition. She knew someone back home who had the same, but one of his personalities took out a hit on the other. This led to a piazza shootout with himself, where he shot down a vermouth sign and hit a priest and a waiter before beating himself up. Coming down the stairs with a new accent and a list of corrections he's made around the house, it is now Mr. Fix-It. Given that he wasn't upstairs very long and one of the tasks he completed was making the TV remote a toilet flusher, I'm not sure how much fix he's going to get done. But that doesn't matter. He's off to help stranded cars on the side of the freeway, after tending to the dishwasher, of course. As Rose and Mr. Fixit discuss his helping them, Sophia goes full-on oh boy, laughing at and being as entertained as a vaudevillian audience member at Chuck's mental health. The cuts to Sophia over-the-top laughing, the jokes about Mr. Fixit's noggin, it is all just so bad. Taking Mr. Fixit back to their place to fix it, the dishwasher, Sophia and Rose are gone, leaving Renee with another opportunity to talk. But George has decided he will be heading into the office. Desperate for her needs to be heard, Renee starts to explain her feelings. He's always at work. The kids are gone. She's bored, has nothing to do. George suggests she joins her girlfriends for whatever they do during the day, which is some real, real housewife stuff. Going shopping, doing lunch, going golfing, having affairs. George is only interested in finding out which of the friends are adulterers. Sure, that part he hears. Not to invalidate her feelings here, but if their kids were grown and Renee's just now feeling bored, is there really all that much difference? Wouldn't this just mean that the few hours after school and before bed are less chaotic? Less laundry and cleaning to do, sure, but what was she already doing during the day? Just keep doing that, maybe. Stopping, sitting, and listening, George is finally engaged in the conversation. He suggests Renee get a job, something she's already considered. She'd like to go back to her life in show business, where she had been a dancer, one who wore a huge box of cigarettes on her body as her legs poked out on the bottom and danced away. It's king size old gold! Sure, that job isn't exactly in demand now, but she still enjoyed bringing smiles to people. George corrects her. No, you brought cancer to people. Oh, thanks, George. Real helpful. It's decided. Renee will go back into show business, but she needs more from George. She'll keep herself busy if he'll keep himself less busy. This is all confusing to George. Nothing has changed for him, but all of a sudden his wife is needing his time and attention. 
It's only coming up now because her downtime has highlighted just how much he's gone. Even if his overworking wasn't the issue, they need to stop and realize they are in a new phase of their marriage and lives. They are empty nesters. It's a chance to reconnect with each other, to put one another first. These aren't feelings she's read about or heard of. She just saw a Taster's Choice commercial with a loving couple and decided that that was what she wanted for her relationship. Pretty powerful instant coffee. It's Taster's Choice Colombian Select with half the caffeine. Get a full cup of flavor with only half the caffeine. The kind of coffee you savor from all Colombian beans. Taster's Choice Colombian Select. Laying it out, Renee says it plainly. Their marriage is in trouble. Again, the phone rings. Again, it's a patient. Again, George is gone. Just when you think we'll get a palate cleanser of going back to the girl's house, we find they have all come over to Renee's house to cheer her up. Or something. Proving that it isn't the lack of the girl's presence that makes this a hated episode, the writing is just all over the place. Here, the girls sound like they're all going to go watch a movie with Renee to keep her company. You know, the thing she's desperate for but then it's implied the ladies are going to a movie. Not only that, it's something you would never expect the four to go to, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which, fun fact, wasn't released for another 15 months. Coco, you're the horror expert. What can you tell us about Nightmare on Elm Street 4? It sucks. <laughs> and I don't remember anything about the plot, except there's a woman who's going to have a child, and I think it's a little baby Freddy Krueger. Oh, fun. It is. It's called the Dream Master. Damn it, Dream Master. Dream and Master. The Dream ma Part Five is the Dream Child. Is this one that it's like on its own because they joke about that? Where Rose is like, "Oh, do I haven't seen the other ones? Do I need to see those?" Well, I think they're just joking about how thin the plotting is in those movies. But as a horror fan, you probably would want to see the the first <laughs> couple, not the second one. Well, the second one is interesting in its own ways, but the yeah. first few are interesting, and I think. Four is a direct sequel to three, so you would actually need to know about the Dream Warriors before you get to, dream, <laughs> before you get to the Dream Master, and then, of course, the Dream Child, Obviously. and then, of course, uh, the Dream is over. Number six, Freddy's Dead, <laughs> which I saw in the theater <gasps> with my mommy in 3D. It was the first 3D movie I ever saw. Back when 3D was not. It was very bad. <laughs> It was very, very bad. The movie was bad, and it and the 3D was worse. Right now, you're going to hear a little clip from a song by uh, from some royalty about a about his own dream master. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what song was it? The Nightmare on uh, Nightmare on My Street that DJ. Jones oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Some royalty. Fresh Prince. <laughs> I was like, wait, who was it? Prince? Fresh Prince. <laughs> I just feel like that Nightmare on Elm Street moment in is like a perfect snapshot of how bonkers this episode is. They would never go to that movie. They didn't go to movies at night, usually. They were always kind of like going and doing their own, or so far what we've seen. Obviously, we're only with them half an hour a week. But them having a movie night was not something we've experienced. They mention a, a franchise the girls would never have watched. They reference a film that has not come out yet. And then Rose is like, oh, yeah, I'll go to the fourth installment of something that I've not seen. It's just like, it just goes to show how disconnected it is or disjointed I guess I don't even know and they were going to go with Rita Moreno yeah they were which again why didn't she go because her whole thing is like I'm really lonely and sad and they're like hey come with us to the movies she's like nah surprising and terrifying her mother is Jenny who has come home from school no not because she's sick and not because she's pregnant She's home because she went to visit her boyfriend, and he had moved on and moved in with another girl. So naturally, her only option was to quit school so he could enjoy his time with his new hand puppet. 
Besides writing an episode of The Drew Carey Show, Jane Harnick, playing Jenny, acted in Fatal Judgment, The Practice, Baywatch, and Remember Me. Jenny's news is not shocking to Blanche, who stands up to show off her perfectly 80s white pants and purple, teal, and pink color-blocked blouse. Of course, school was bad. It was at New York's Columbia University. How could you trust a school that has a subway going through it? For Blanche, college was all about beautiful properties and distinguished professors wearing twill fabric pants who get in your space so much you can smell the coffee and tobacco on his breath. This whole monologue is not only an oh boy in general, but especially for Blanche, who has recently encountered sexual harassment via a college professor. Yet here she lightheartedly jokes about wearing a short skirt so the professor can look up it while you sit in the front row. Blanche's story has the girls all looking flustered as Jenny looks on in delightful curiosity. Watching Blanche paint a lurid picture of what a Red Shoe Diaries college experience can be like, Jenny might be reconsidering going back to school. Finally shutting herself up with a hornily consumed cracker, Blanche's story comes to an end. Getting back to her daughter, Renee asks what happened, again. Jenny goes into more detail. Her boyfriend met a skinny, pretty, perfectly packaged blonde, a position Blanche knows all too well, just like every other position. To clarify, Blanche hasn't been in Jenny's shoes, being dumped for another girl. She's been in the position of having it all and someone else's boyfriend. Even if Blanche can't relate to losing the man, she can relate to having problems. An example of such problem, per Dorothy, this goddess is twice the size she used to be. Oh boy! Not just a weight joke, but a totally unprovoked one that is then met with a weird, upset, blinky stare from Blanche? This episode. As for the other ladies in the room, they can relate to Jenny's rejection. Although Dorothy going on about how painful losing your first love is probably isn't helping Jenny as much as she thinks. Rose agrees about the pain of your first love. Taking a guess as to the species, Sophia throws out that it was probably a cow. And she was right? Sadly, we don't get to learn anything more about Rose and her cow. It's Dorothy's turn to share about hers, Larry Raganetti. Dorothy was in love with the handsome young man, but lost him to a classmate named Cookie, as she kissed with an open mouth. Dorothy didn't, because they were only eight. Somebody check on Cookie. And Blanche, who sees no issue with such behavior at the young age. When Renee, in her long-sleeved white dress and oversized navy sweater vest, reminds Jenny they've all been rejected, Blanche pipes in yet again. She's never been rejected, except for that one time from Weight Watchers, as she was too skinny for the point-counting diet program. It's time to get to the movies. So Blanche and Dorothy, in light pants and a shirt with light pink and light brown, you know, that bad wedding color combination jacket with designs of circles and palm fronds, Sophia in a dark floral dress and black cardigan, and Rose in a light blue dress all make their way out the front door. With a line of hellos and goodbyes, the girls are gone and George is back, delighted to find his daughter in the living room. Renee assures him she's not sick or pregnant, and no, it's not Thanksgiving. Jean's yellow sweater and tan belly belt-wearing Jenny fills her dad in on the breakup. To comfort his daughter, George spills that he always hated that guy. Continuing to comfort, Renee once again tells her daughter rejection happens to everyone, even her father. Not acknowledging what her mother is saying, nor that she's said it four times now, Jenny starts explaining how, due to a fear of dying of embarrassment, she can't go back to school, as she might encounter the happy couple. That's just not possible, her doctor father assures her. He's never had a patient die from embarrassment. But that's just in his practice. The BBC Science Focus magazine tells us that actually, yes, you can die from embarrassment. It is incredibly rare, but in 1860, a housemaid was caught stealing food and dropped dead. Her cause of death was not found at the time, but it is now believed it was the sudden rush of adrenaline at the embarrassment of being caught. To make sure her daughter doesn't drop dead of embarrassment or drop out of school, Renee makes a plan to go back to the school with her to help her readjust. Then the door opens, and we're introduced to yet another character, Oliver. Geez, guys, maybe you'd have more opportunities to be intimate if you, like, locked your door. 
In light jeans, a brown leather jacket, and a somehow charming brush cut, Oliver is played by David Leisure, who got his first gig as, oh boy, a Hare Krishna in Airplane. Hello, we'd like you to have this flower from the Church of Religious Consciousness. Would you like to make a donation? No thanks, we gave it the office. After landing some commercials, he was hired as the famous lying salesman, Joe Isuzu. Hi, I'm Joey Susu. Here, in my factory, I equip these eye marks with millions of standard features, like a breakfast nook, twin satellite dishes, and for those kids, a frozen yogurt machine. Prices start at $69.99 with 5.9% financing. And if you miss eight or nine payments, that's okay. I trust you. The Isuzu iMark, for a limited time with 5.9% financing. The popularity of that character got him the job of Oliver on the Empty Nests episode. His charm worked well as he is the only character from this episode to be hired for the sitcom, only as Charlie. Of course, his seventh seasons on Empty Nest wasn't his only work. He appeared in Alf, Married with Children, The Brady Bunch Movie, Ten Things I Hate About You, The Young and the Restless, Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, and The Goldbergs. I've never found anything definitive, but with Oliver being a pilot, and when he comes back as Charlie, the cruise employee, it's hard to imagine the Family Guy character Glenn Quagmire not having been inspired by him, even in looks. The temperature in Atlanta is 64 degrees. Uh, the flight's going to be a little longer than we've expected. Uh, we've got some very strong headwinds, giggity. Getting Oliver's vibe right away, we learn he spent the night in the cabin crew of Europe's second-largest airline, Lufthansa. George is unimpressed. Renee and Jenny are unfazed as Oliver makes himself at home, going into the kitchen to grab a beer. After George sort of threatens to cut Jenny off, there seems to be a plan in place to keep her in school. Before she's flying back, she's going to go see a few friends. That's when we learn Oliver is a test pilot, and he's seen it all. He recommends Jenny hitchhike back to school as it would be safer than flying. When Jenny says she doesn't need that info, he shares the info she really doesn't need is about the freaky stuff going on in the cockpit. Simply reminding Oliver he's speaking to a teenager, George gives him a come on before Jenny leaves to see her friends. Feeling sympathetic for their daughter, the parents look to each other for confirmation of them having made the right choice, which I guess was to force her to stay in school? Not concerned with the family drama, Oliver requests George take a look at a growth on his cheek. Lacking all the social skills, he doesn't care about what they're in the middle of or that he wasn't offered snacks, which he then helps himself to. Worried he was wrong about the possibility of death via embarrassment, George goes on about the decision they made before telling Oliver the spot on his face is a liver spot, which are caused by sun exposure. The news leaves Oliver whining and moaning about how he'll turn into a Dalmatian like his father. Without a test or full exam, there is good news as George assures him it's benign. Attempting to join the family meeting, Oliver starts inquiring as to the topic at hand. Not wanting him involved, they ask him to leave. So he has a seat. After getting more specific with their need for him to leave and ignoring his attempts at engaging in questions, Oliver is finally gone. We may never know who Oliver was or why he was so comfortable with the family, but we're glad to have met him. In the nine seconds of co-parenting Renee and George did, Renee feels Renee'd hope for her marriage. It was proof they were capable of the kind of teamwork she is so desperately craving. Making jokes about literally everything, George asks if this means they're getting uniforms. When she finally has the guts to ask him to cut back on work, he jokes about blowing a heart attack patient off for a dinner date with her. Showing just how serious she is about the problems in their relationships, Renee tells him she's not going to New York just to help Jenny, but to also feel needed. This is a new chapter in her life, and she needs her husband by her side. Jenny and Renee have now gone to New York. They've been there six days, and already Renee has an agent. She was serious about that showbiz thing. Serving us Mr. Rogers' realness, George, in a yellow and blue plaid shirt with red cardigan, is complaining about his wife's success and hustle to Oliver, who points out the possibility of Renee never coming home. Finally, with Renee gone, George is the one feeling lonely, realizing how good he has it. 
even piffing out, going, is this what lonely is? Typical straight white guy, unable to empathize until it happens to him. More concerning is that Oliver has found the fridge to be quite lacking with Renee's absence. Over Oliver's shoulder, we see an arm waiting for its cue to knock. When they do, we find it's Dorothy, who's stopped by. Due to Oliver's behavior at the New Year's party, where he puked in the pool, peed in a closet, and showed up with three naked women, Dorothy is not a fan. As for why she came over, she wants to invite George to dinner. With no reason as to why he won't go to dinner and no begging from Dorothy, her much-appreciated appearance is over and she leaves, even more annoyed at Oliver, who insists on calling her Dot. Realizing he needs to show a grand romantic gesture, George has decided to go to New York. Oliver has decided to use the phone to call his mother to see if she wants dinner. But due to his behavior, I'm guessing at either a Valentine's gathering or a St. Patrick's Day party, she is not interested. We're in New York City, baby, where Renee is staying in the most opulent hotel room ever, with a corner window, dramatic drapes, floral wallpaper, wall sconces, chandeliers, a vanity, dresser, so many chairs, this was not cheap. Renee is surprised to see George at the door and delighted by what he has to say. He's realized now how close they've come to losing each other, and that's the last thing he wants. He's going to make the changes needed to make things right. And just like Detective Al, he's wondering why she's opening the door before asking who's on the other side. Renee promises George, even if things had been going well in New York, she wasn't planning on staying there or leaving him. She missed him too much. She realizes she's been putting too much pressure on him, setting expectations way too high. He's realized he can help things by being home more, a lot more, by bringing his practice there via a home office. I don't know that having strangers, six strangers, coming in and out of her house at all hours was what she was seeking, but it's a good start, Georgie boy. Renee doesn't care about those details. It's the gesture that counts. But that's not all. He's lowered his case count and has taken the next few days off so they can have a second honeymoon. Or, as Renee reminds him, their first. When they were first married, she was stuck at a hospital while he was doing a medical internship. To make it up to her, George gives Renee a big, passionate kiss. Before cutting to them in bed three days later, after he gave her a big, passionate lovemaking. They're both on cloud nine, madly in love, starting anew. For Renee, she's decided to take this beautiful moment and start questioning everything. Will you still love me when I'm older? When I don't look as beautiful? Ugh. It earns some laughs, but I think George makes a sweet and good point that she doesn't look like she did a decade ago, and he still loves her. She's slightly offended, but it should kind of quell her concerns. He also promises he'll never go the route of Oliver with fake teeth and flight attendant girlfriends. Feeling assured in their relationship, they curl up in one another's arms and turn out the lights before Renee has one more request. It could be a super sweet moment or a perfect spot for a punchline. Instead, we get Renee asking George to promise her one more thing that he'll never die. Coco, do you have a summation of this episode now that you have experienced empty nests? This episode to me felt like I watched a bunch of TV before I went to bed, and then Mm. I had a, not a nightmare, but a very intense and kind of dark dream where the setting was ostensibly a sitcom, but it was much darker and more filtered through my psyche, you know? That's a really good way to put it. And it just felt like, or let, or that you were asleep with the TV on for hours. Mm-hmm. That, oh, that, yeah, that, and your brain is processing the shows that are on. That horrible feeling when you yeah. wake up is what Empty Nest was like. <laughs> That's a perfect way to describe it. I don't know what could have made it better because here you have a cast that is well-regarded and has following and like there's a there's a fan base of these actors and you have the 80s quirkiness of all these characters and multiple personalities and super sexualized guy and then their story is so pedestrian retold 
heard it a million times, not interesting. I don't know what they pictured multiple seasons of that looking like. Yeah, of her, of her being like, George, you need to work more. And he's like, well, but I got to do this. Yeah, I, and would then, they have just been fighting the whole time? Would it be that here's this doctor? Like, I'm sure he was a doctor to compete with other shows, other sitcoms that featured a dad that was a doctor. Oh, God. of That's probably why of he was. Of course. Um, Damn him. Yeah. Given that it's number 26, not 25, and the first season was 25, and this episode 25 of season two was a clip show, so it already felt like the season kind of ended. This just felt, I think part of the hatred is the F you to the audience. We're, we're saying it's Golden Girls. We're going to give you three more, minutes. Yeah. You get three minutes of the girls. They won't be themselves. It will not be funny. And everything else will be boring. And the writing is so shockingly bad for being Susan Harris. When they're talking to Jenny about school, Rita Renee literally repeats herself like four or five oh, times. Oh, that was the worst, yeah. Well, yeah, what happened? He's met someone else. Well, so what's happening, honey? Oh, we did it. We parented. And it was like, how? What? She said, okay, I'll go to school and I'm going to go see my friends. What? Yeah, it's just everything was rushed. Yeah, they didn't work as a couple Oh, they, no. I mean, no, you and know. And they'd been friends for years, so it's like they had a chemistry, but it was not romantic. And he, the, Paul Dooley, who I really like. He's great. Always, even in this, he's kind of comforting to see. He's just a comforting actor. Oh, and a great voice. His voice great is very voice. comforting. Great so, One of the so best. Nice. Yeah. The way he plays this so almost manically and won't hear a single, it's like, you're a doctor, bro. You don't know how to listen for like a sentence. Even out of a, a 2022 lens of problematic and everything, even out of that, it is bad TV, flat out. Yeah, just no meat on the bones, no story. They were just trying. Yeah, they were trying to sell us a a, a bad piece of fish. <laughs> it's the special today. It isn't. Mm -mm. To that we say no, thank you. We don't want your fish. There really is a good lesson here. No, not that you shouldn't try to shoehorn new characters into a backdoor pilot. It's communication. As little as we may care about George and Renee's problems, what was important was that Renee was talking about them. She was confiding in and getting advice from friends. She was expressing her needs and emotions. And she was reaching out to her husband, telling him exactly what she needed from him to meet her needs. When George didn't listen, it was up to her and her boundaries to decide what the next step would be, and she took it, pursuing her dreams, living her life. Luckily, it all worked out for the couple, and they can live happily ever after, until George breaks his promise and dies. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we kick off season three with all sorts of new friends in Old Friends. I think I, I slept pretty well last night. Good. Even though I, I think I had some really intense dreams. Oh my. But that's not for now. <laughs> I'll handle that in the dreamscape. Oh. Even her armless uncle Gustav, who suffered the limb loss after an oversized Swiss Narmi. Narmi? They're using and abusing Chuck and his mental health yeah. disorders. Tonight on Golden Girls. <laughs> on the other hand, Blanche never experienced any emptiness depression. <laughs> Sorry, going Blanche with it. To learn about the centuries, millennia long conflict or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand it. And I've seen Munich. You know, I think for for fans of the show that hate this episode, mm -hmm. I think this might become the only palatable way to absorb it. <laughs> Digest to, the actual story. Is to listen to this episode, yes. <laughs> That's really funny. A public service. <laughs> that house brought really sparked a sense memory. Yes. <laughs> one of... Uh, Triggering, one would say. Yeah. Yeah, I would call that house zero, <laughs> zero flags Magic Mountain. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll ask her about that today. Today is her birthday. Happy birthday, Amy. Oh, fun. You'll always be my sister. Er. <laughs> Happy birthday, Amy. <laughs> Here, the Cleveland. <laughs> the Cleveland Clinic, home of the steamers. Go Steamers! Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters.
darkness falls across Richmond. It's the end of the second season. People named Renee and George will terrorize y'all's neighborhood. And whosoever Chuck shall be leaves us saying, oh boy. As we feel like we're in hell with the always ringing doorbell. The foulest guest is Oliver, the funk of 40,000 lovers, and grisly details of a prostate have us wishing we could leave this place. And though you fight to stay awake, your body cannot rest, for no Golden Girls fan can enjoy the evils of empty nests.